So Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for uh, this text. Thank you for your word to us uh, as we take just a few moments to understand it, to, uh, to dive deeper with it, to see what it means for our lives. Uh, God, would your spirit speak to us as a church? Uh, as we are investigating and unpacking this text, would you be aiding us in that journey and helping us understand and, and help uh, us realize what this means for our lives today? Father, by the power of your Spirit, would you help me teach and preach in a way that is faithful? And God, would this ultimately uh, change and transform us as a church as we continue week by week looking at the person and life of Jesus? Would we every week be impacted and changed by him? We pray this in uh, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're in the book of Matthew, and for the sake of, of those of you who haven't been tracking with us, or uh, maybe if you need a little bit of refresher, at this point, the ministry of Jesus has spread pretty far. It spread across Israel, Palestine, into Syria, and what is modern-day Lebanon. And so Jesus' fame is spreading throughout the area. People are flocking to him. But in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew goes to great lengths to help us understand not only who Jesus is, but why some of the things Matthew tells us about Jesus are really important. He goes to great lengths to connect Jesus to the Old Testament, because Matthew's primary audience is Jewish people, right? So it's in, in first century Palestine that Matthew is writing, and he's writing to a largely Jewish audience. And so a lot of his book is an apologetic for the person of Jesus to, to be the person who said he was, right? To, to actually be the, the foretold Messiah King that they've all been expecting. Matthew writes a case for who he is and why we should listen to him. It's a book that's being written for the explicit purpose of showing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He does that through a genealogy, through his birth narrative, baptism, temptation in the desert, things that may seem a little odd to us, but he does that so that his audience would see that Jesus is the person that this audience has been waiting for. Right? A lot of Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, and even 4 are fulfilling specific prophetic promises God has made with Israel, and they come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of all the history with God and the Israelites, and that the goal of God's redemptive history with not only just the Israelites, but the entire world, the goal of that redemptive history is to be with his people. That's the foundation, and that's the frame of mind Matthew wants us in as we read through his gospel, that God is a God who wants to be with his people. And at the end of Matthew 4, Matthew tells us that multitudes were coming from all over to hear him teach, to be healed, and encounter the man Jesus. And we just spent the last few months studying the longest recorded sermon we have of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount where we've been the past few months. It's taken us a little while to get through it, but it's the first and, and largest block of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a teaching to two types of people. To his disciples, 
It's a teaching about life in the kingdom, this manifesto of what life with him looks like, a, a line in the sand, a flag in the ground, however you want to picture it. It's this mission statement for what life in his kingdom looks like. But it's also a standing invitation to the crowd, to anyone and everyone who would hear the gospel message to join him. He invites others in. And so last week, you guys heard from Matt. He was here teaching. Matt's our lead pastor at Anthem and Thousand Oaks, and he was teaching about how Jesus was healing people. And at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, we really get to see explicitly how incredible and exciting the ministry of Jesus was. He's healing people, and we've seen references to that before, but these are some of our first explicit stories of, of who and how Jesus is healing we saw the interactions with the leper, the centurion slave, Peter and his mother-in-law, and Jesus' earthly ministry has been incredible so far. God in the flesh has come, and the kingdom of God is on display. And there's this constant invitation into the life that Jesus is modeling. And so our text today, verses 18, 19, 20, 22, 21, and 22, they take place in the city of Capernaum. And so I have a little map to help you visualize where this is, because Jesus kind of starts to rove about a little bit. And so if you can see the Sea of Galilee, this is northern Israel. And so you're not even going to see Jerusalem or much of Samaria down below, but we just zoomed in around where Jesus is at right now. And so the Sea of Galilee is right in the middle, and on the top is this town of Capernaum, right? It's like a kind of a beach town, much like Ventura. And so uh, Jesus is up there with his disciples, and the crowds are following him from all over. People are walking and riding donkeys and horses to hear the man and to see the ministry of Jesus, right? And so he's got a huge crowd following him, and his response to the crowd is, Let's get away from them. And so he wants to hop on a boat. And actually, in a few verses later, we see that he's trying to go to the area of Gadar, the country of Gadar right down below. So he wants to go to the opposite side of the lake to get away from the crowds. And we're going to see this frequently throughout the book of Matthew. When there's a huge swell of crowd or a huge swell of ministry or teaching takes place, Jesus isolates and takes his disciples to either go get rest or to draw away from the crowd. He is not allured by the crowds. The crowds have followed him, so he tells his disciples, let's get in a boat and get away. So he travels, but right before he travels on the boat, we have this little interaction with two people that come to approach him out of the crowds. And I have to imagine if, if, we, if you and I were living in this time, or maybe I'll just speak for myself, if I were living in this time and, and seeing some of the things that Jesus did or, or hearing uh, some of the teachings he's giving or even just hearing sort of the ripple effects of this man Jesus walking all around uh, the Sea of Galilee, northern Israel, doing these wild things, I would be incredibly interested Right? This was causing an incredible ripple in the culture. And honestly, I would probably be trying to follow Jesus wherever he went to. Right? Maybe I needed to be healed, or maybe I needed to learn more about what the kingdom of God was like, or whatever. Maybe I was just like so fascinated by what he was doing with other people that I wanted to follow him as well. And what we see, what we have a little glimpse of here, right before Jesus gets on the boat, is we see that in this time, in the time period of Matthew chapter 8, that following Jesus is a compelling life. It's one that is drawing the attentions of the crowds, of potential disciples, and even the scribes and the Pharisees. Something about the way Jesus is living, teaching, healing, casting out demons is incredibly compelling to people. 
Jesus was, was a big deal. He's unlike anyone who has ever come before. So there's not only uh, the crowds, but there are a couple of other groups that are with Jesus. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at those two groups. So help me out. What were the two groups that Jesus is talking to in the Sermon on the Mount? One of them is the disciples, correct. By the way, these are not like the 12 disciples that we, we know of later. He calls those later. These are just those who are saying they want to follow after Jesus. Okay, so specific groups following Jesus, disciples, and who else? Yeah, the crowds, absolutely. So that's what we get in the Sermon on the Mount. We have the crowds, and we have the disciples. And so these are the two primary groups Jesus is interacting with. And out of the crowds, we see a third group emerge, which are the scribes. So the scribes were the authority in Jewish law. They had close ties with the Pharisees, and and in a culture where not many could really read or write, they were highly educated. And because of that, they held a certain social status in the Jewish world, right? They were scholarly, the academic class of Jewish culture and society. But maybe most important of all, what's important to remember about the scribes is they were extremely invested and fiercely loyal to the system of religious traditions that had developed. So not only the, the, what we call the law and the prophets or what we know as the Old Testament, but also the oral and written laws that have been added in the 400 years since the close of the Old Testament. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we kind of did this brief history of, of where we're at in the book of Matthew, and the narrative of God's people stops in the book of Nehemiah. But from the the book of Nehemiah to the book of Matthew, there's roughly 400 years that's taking place. And in that 400 years, the Jewish people are developing not only oral laws, but written laws. And so these scribes are the ones who are not only studying the law and the prophets, but all these additional laws and writings that have become part of Jewish culture. So out of the crowds, a scribe approaches Jesus. And they're honestly, for most of the book of Matthew, they're, they're typically included as those who oppose Jesus, those who are against him in some way. But in this moment, we have a scribe with the full knowledge of all these prophecies and the law and the prophets, with the full knowledge of, of who this person is that is required to save God's people. And he says, I want to follow you. He says, teacher or rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. And last week, when Matt was here, he kind of opened up. I, I, I listened to the podcast, but then I also chatted with him a little bit about his time here. And he was telling me how he opened up just kind of the message last week, asking a few of you guys, I think it was Jeremy and George and a few other people, like, what was it that drew you to Jesus initially? What was it about Jesus or life in Christ that, that made that compelling or appealing to you, that made you say yes at the get-go? And there were some incredible answers. It was, it was fun to listen to. And But the reality is Jesus is compelling for a lot of different reasons to a lot of different people. For some, it'll be the teaching. Others, maybe his miracles. For some, it's the compassion, or still more, it's the foundational truth, this cornerstone piece of God's story. But we see for whatever reason, people wanted to follow Jesus. It was a desirable and compelling life. And so someone who is steeped in Jewish tradition and the religious systems comes out of the crowd and says, I want to follow you. What Jesus shows us in these five verses is that a life following Jesus is not only a compelling one, but it's one that demands a high cost. It's one that requires immediacy, and it's one that requires supremacy over everything else that often honestly challenges our modern sensibilities. 
And so right now, it feels like it's been like rainbows and roses up until this point. And this is where Jesus lays the hammer and says, this is what it's really like to follow me. There's a high cost and there's an immediacy required following me. So let's look at both of those. The first one, that there's a high cost to following Jesus. Look at verse 19. The scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It seems pretty enthusiastic about following after Jesus. In verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The scribe calls out to Jesus and says, teacher, I want to follow you. I want to do life with you. I want to be your disciple. This is a man who has seen and heard all that Jesus has done. He is steeped in all these prophecies that God has given to his people about the coming Messiah. And his conclusion is that Jesus is the only way. Now, just at a, at a surface level, that's a pretty good conclusion to come to, right? Right? Like, on the surface, this is a guy who, like, knows the law and the prophets inside and out, knows who to be looking for. This is a guy who should not be surprised that Jesus is the Messiah. He sees that. He sees everything he's doing, the teaching, the preaching, healing, casting out demons, and said, I want to follow you. This would be, like, a huge get for Jesus, right? This is like an A-plus disciple, He's a scribe, one of the few guys who knows how to read and write and really understands the Jewish history that had led up to this point. And Jesus gives kind of a, a weird response. He doesn't really uh, just say, come on, let's do this. Sure, man, I'll take you. Let's go. He takes a moment to clarify the cost of following Jesus. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And on the surface, that may seem like a non-answer, but what that really is is a, a fairly stark response that Jesus gives to someone who seems to be pretty enthusiastic about following Jesus. Starker still, if we're steeped in what it means to follow a rabbi in first century Palestine. Jesus' form of discipleship is very different than what a scribe might expect or even have experienced previously in his training. Rabbis enjoyed a pretty high social status in Judaism. But Jesus has no school, no synagogue, or prestigious place of honor in the religious establishment. He stays in the homes of friends and relatives and disciples. He doesn't have a fancy house. So the expression, no place to lay his head, is not necessarily referring to homelessness. Rather, what he's trying to tell this guy is that his ministry will not result in an institutional affirmation, right? The perks and benefits of being a, a high-class rabbi in the first century. And, he says, will also be the lot of those that follow me. Don't expect a glamorous religious life. Like, rabbis were the top of the, the totem pole socially in this area. He says, don't expect that. That's not what I'm coming to bring. That's not what I'm all about. What Jesus is saying is that following him comes at the cost of a normal life that people would have come to expect being a part of the world. We can kind of infer that based on the two examples he gives. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Now, this is not like a glamorous life. This is like for the foxes and birds, like normal elements of everyday life. Right? This is to be expected of the average life of a fox or a bird. But the reality is the Son of Man doesn't provide that guarantee of normalcy. Did you catch that? So the scribe who is who's steeped in Jewish training and might expect the glamour of following a rabbi 
does not get that. In fact, he's not even promised normalcy in life. He's guaranteed a very different kind of life. Jesus doesn't come to bring normal, to meet our expectations or make us comfortable. In fact, to follow Jesus is to commit yourself to a life of readiness for the gospel, often at the expense of a lot of other things, especially cultural norms. Paul, in in Ephesians chapter 6, uses armor to give a picture of what it looks like to to be with Jesus, to be a disciple of him, life in Christ. And he has a a particularly interesting image that that comes in line with what Jesus is saying here. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, taking up the whole armor of God, uh, and he kind of describes some of them so that we may withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So your life is no longer about arriving at a comfortable, livable existence. Following Jesus comes at the cost of that because our lives are built on the foundation, literally the shoes, the thing we walk on, a readiness for the gospel, a readiness for gospel opportunities, a readiness to pursue Jesus in life at the expense of something else. If we look around us, we see lots in our community have plenty, right? It's not easy, or it's not hard to see. I mean, we live in, in Southern California in 2016. We, we all generally live lives of plenty. Even those of us who might live the coast to bare minimum shoestring budget is plenty compared to most of the world. And in our kind of common, in our, in our cultural context as, as Christians, the only one we really see kind of giving it all up or maybe missionaries who go to a different part of the world or whatever. But for the most part, we're like able to have our cake and eat it too, right? Like in Southern California, for the most part, we're, we're able to like have a pretty good life and then try to follow Jesus at the same time. Jesus' message to you and I is if that is our expectation, then we've missed it. We've missed something. Not, and so, so hear me, there's a, there's a differentiation here. Not that living in plenty or being blessed or kind of living the good life here in Ventura is not a bad thing, but when that becomes the expectation and the point, we've missed something about the gospel. Our expectation needs to be that everything is on the table when we're following Jesus. It means we'd be willing to give up all the comforts and treasures of this earth in obedience and pursuit to Christ. It's all on the table. It's not bad that we have a house and that my family, we have two cars. It's not a bad thing in and of itself, but if that is our expectation from Jesus for life, we have missed something about the gospel. The second aspect of responding to Jesus is not only that there's a high cost, but there's this expectation of immediacy and supremacy over everything else. Look at verse 21. Another of uh, the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So another guy saying, I'm in. I want all in. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. You're going on a boat? I'm going to follow you on a boat. Let's do this thing. So he's, he's talking to Jesus, says, I want in. Another one of the disciples says, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Another odd response maybe here, like another potential non-answer, but what Jesus is digging at is the root of this man's ask. There's an expected immediacy for and supremacy of following Jesus. 
this disciple, this would-be disciple, says, I want to follow you, but I got to take care of something first. And there's been a lot of discussion and conversation over the nature of Jesus' response. A lot of like scholars have, you know, used up a lot of ink writing this one out. But the gist of what the man's excuse is, is that there is a responsibility in Jewish culture for children to honor their parents, right? And it's become one of like a, it's become a really high and noble thing to actually honor your parents. And so what we're getting at here is that the man's father is not actually dead, And so if he were dead in Jewish culture, he wouldn't even be there. He would be dealing with the body that day. So we know he's not dead. He may have days, weeks, months, years to live. But what he's getting at is he has some obligation to his father that he has to honor. Once he's fulfilled that obligation, presumably when his dad dies, then he will be freed up to follow Jesus. The man was saying that he wants to go and bury his father, referring to the future. His dad had probably not died that morning, but was in the final years of his life. And this disciple knew that he could not fully give his life to Jesus while he had obligations and commitment to his father. And what we see Jesus start to unpack here is that when we start to pile obligations or tasks in front of following Jesus, we we lose the immediacy and really the authority of that call to respond to him. Jesus is saying, this is not how the kingdom of God works. It's not something we get around to when we finished our other to-do items. And, this is important, it's not on the same playing field as everything else in your life. Did you guys catch that? This is, Jesus says, the most important thing for you. Following after him, being a disciple for him. That, tonight, is going to wreck some of our worldviews. Because our career is super important, right? We have to be diligent and honorable at our career, and God's given us that, so we have to pursue that. Our family is really important. We have to take care of our family. Our friends, our relationships, our close relationships that we foster are incredibly important. If we're in college, the classes we take are incredibly important. Absolutely. But Jesus is saying those things are not on the same playing field as following me. That supersedes everything else in life. Even what would be an incredibly normal part of Jewish life is is fulfilling obligation to one's parents. Not only normal, but it would have been a noble and honorable thing to do. Jesus says, no, they are not the same thing. The call to follow me is supreme over everything else. Those other components of life do not even compare to the importance and the immediacy of the call to follow Christ. Jesus is saying that upon hearing the truth of the gospel, the only acceptable response is an immediate response. There's nothing more important than what is right in front of you, the message of the gospel. A scholar I've quoted a couple of times in our series, a New Testament scholar, Grant Osborne, he puts it this way, Both of these men are more sincere than many who attend church but are unwilling to get involved. Yet, Jesus still sends them away with a curt, startling demand for a deeper surrender to him. To many think that they can get into heaven on the basis of a basic faith while clinging to the world. Yet, James says clearly that faith without works is dead in James chapter 2. Unless we show by the way we live our lives that Christ is first, we are not disciples. 
We are saved by grace apart from works, Ephesians 2 tells us, but our good works or our response are a necessary proof that we have found faith. Now, we may not come right out and say it, but how many times have we thought or expressed with our lives, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I really have to spend some time building this business I just started. Or Jesus, I really want to follow you, but I just, I have a couple more classes I have to finish up. Where I'm almost done with my undergrad, and then I'm going to grad school, and then I, I will be totally freed up to follow you. Or just, Jesus, I just, want to, I just want to do my thing for a little while, and then once I get married and have kids settle down, then, then I'll be able to follow you with my life. Or I just, I need a little bit more time to, to maybe travel a little bit or to kind of have some freedom, and then, then you got me. I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you want. Or we can even zoom out a little bit. God, I want to be on mission for you in this world, but it just, that takes a little bit, it takes too much time. I don't have time for that in my schedule. Or God, I want to be generous, but I'm, I'm just really trying to save. I don't make that much money, and I can't, I can't be generous yet, but I will be, I will be soon. Or, or I want to live in community, but, but right now it's just easier to hang out with people that are, that are like me. Now, we would never really come out and say those things, right? Because that would be like, we'd catch ourselves in that moment and be like, oh, that's a dumb thing. Let's try something else. But honestly, if we look at our lives, how many times have we thought that? Or, better yet, how many times have our lives actually reflected that? If you're hearing the message of the kingdom of God, there's nothing worth delaying giving yourselves to the kingdom. When you come to Jesus, you don't simply give him a slice of your life pie. You have one Sunday a month, God, and, and maybe if I can make it to a missional community during the week, cool. Or you have two Sundays. That's a lot. That's like two Sundays I can't travel, so that, that's plenty. Or you can have maybe one, one morning uh, a week when I'll, I'll have some quiet time and, and read my Bible and pray a little bit, but that's real. I got to get to work early, so I can't do too many other days. We don't simply give him a slice of our life pie. What Jesus does, he takes our pie, he says, the whole thing is about me. It's for me, it's pointing to me, it's filtered through me, and he gives it back to us. He says, go eat the pie. I don't know, every analogy falls apart at some point. But anyway, the point is, all of, all of our lives are for Christ, about him. They're shaped by him and filtered by him. And so as we head back into our lives, as we head back into our week coming Monday, how can we step back and say, okay, Christ, everything is yours. You've, you've taken me, you've saved me, you've redeemed me. You're shaping my life. How can I see my, my week, my next seven days, the way you would see it? It doesn't mean you need to quit your job or run away from your family or anything like that, but how can you see what God has already given you? Well, God has put in your life in front of you presently and say, what would it look like to see this how Jesus might see this? How would it look like to approach my classroom like Jesus might approach my classroom? Or my startup business like Jesus would approach my startup business? Like, what would it look like to actually, like, go into our week thinking, how would Jesus approach this week? You can't say... Jesus says this. You can't say that you believe the kingdom of God then hold back your life. It's not how this works, Jesus says. 
And honestly, I think this is hard because many of us have heard a version of the gospel that says you don't need to give up much. Just, just show up every once in a while on a Sunday. Maybe give a little bit of your money, give a little bit of your time, and that's it. We promise we won't take any more. And we've heard that version of the gospel that says just kind of just filter this into your life. You, you like Buddhism? Sure, just add Jesus into that. You're super into karma? Cool, Jesus and karma can kind of work out together or whatever. Or you want to be like really stingy and selfish with your money? Cool, just, just try to like give someone a couple bucks every once in a while. We try to take the person, the message, the ministry of Jesus and try to integrate it into the way we see our life. We try to take it and integrate it into our worldview or the things we think are right. And we become the basis of our authority and what's right and what's wrong. We say, okay, Jesus, how do you fit in? I'll take the good parts Right? I'll, I'll take some of the cool things Jesus says in the New Testament, totally ignore the Old Testament, and read fast during the times where Jesus gets harsh. We shy away from this high call that Jesus presents in, in Matthew because, honestly, it just interferes with what we want to do with our life. There's no other reason except we're selfish. Like, that's the root of it. Like, we want to like, live life the way we want to live life. Like every moment and opportunity you have to pursue the way of Jesus in your life is always met with the temptation to serve yourself. Always. Always, always. And Jesus says, life with me, being my disciples about pursuing me over the things that you want when they come into competition. Now there's this there's tension, and I, and I hope you've maybe felt some tension so far. There's this tension in the life and ministry of Jesus of of this kind of free invitation of grace into the life of Christ, but also this like really high bar Jesus seems to set with people every once in a while. And it, it's a tension that I don't know is, is totally resolved or answered in the life of Jesus, but it happens so frequently that it's worth mentioning. And this tension in Matthew, and in fact the whole of the New Testament, but specifically Jesus really hones into this, is kind of what the free gift of grace and this invitation is like versus the high cost of following Jesus. And so we've had, honestly, a few chapters of kind of invitation. Come, find rest in me. Come, I have grace for you. Welcome, pour in the Spirit. Absolutely, the kingdom is yours. And then we have this moment where he, like, smacks us. And he says, this is what it really costs to follow me. So for the religious elite... Uh, and I would probably place a lot of us in that category, like well-versed in, in the Bible, has some time in history with Jesus. We'd probably be in this category more often than not. For the religious elite of his time, Jesus tended to raise the bar really high. So I have a couple of examples for you. Uh, so throughout some of the Gospels uh, in which Jesus raised the bar really high was the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. And he says, after this rich young ruler says, I've obeyed all the commandments, I want to follow after you, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. In the Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning in Matthew chapter 5, right, Jesus tells us, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a really, really high bar. He says a little bit later in Matthew that whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And in Luke chapter 14, he says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's a pretty high bar, pretty high cost to following Jesus. Marry that with this free invitation of grace he has as he interacts with people. He makes it difficult for people who think they have it all together. 
right? So maybe it's hard work or diligent labor or spiritual achievements or religious history or tradition or whatever it is. Those are the people he tends to raise the bar really high with. And so if that maybe is our category. We've had a long heritage or tradition with Christianity. Maybe we need to heed some of those warnings. But for those who are poor in spirit, there's this message of grace. Look at Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. He says, today's salvation has come to this house. Right? Zacchaeus was a totally rotten dude. And it wasn't Jesus telling him to give back everything he's taken fourfold or whatever it was. But he does that as a response to meeting and seeing this Jesus. And Jesus says, man, this guy has really understood the message of the gospel. When Jesus calls Matthew just in the next chapter over, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Open invitation. And Luke chapter 7, to the sinful woman, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. No talk of a high bar. No talk of needing to have righteousness above the scribes and the Pharisees. It says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And finally, in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's this tension we have in the ministry of Jesus. The grace is available for all, yes and amen, but there is a high cost to following Jesus. And if we think that following Jesus is showing up at a Sunday gathering, reading our Bible occasionally, and that's it, we've missed it. If we think it doesn't mean giving up the comforts and the treasures of this world, we've missed it. And sometimes, for some people, that tension is there in both ways. If you would, go with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. So between this tension of a high bar and the free grace for all, they're kind of both found together with the woman caught in adultery. Let's start at verse 3. John chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they say to him, Teacher or rabbi, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. By the way, we have no idea what he wrote on the ground, just to quell your curiosity. Uh, Verse 9, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Beautiful picture of the grace, the free gift of grace. Neither do I condemn you. Married with a really high bar, go and sin no more. That's a pretty high bar to live by if we're taking Jesus at his word. There's this tension we find ourselves in as we pursue life with Christ that yes, grace is free and available for all, absolutely. Forgiveness is available for all, absolutely. 
But if we are proclaiming yes to Jesus with our mouths, Jesus and James and Paul all say, now let's work on getting your life to match that. The call to follow Jesus is an inviting one and a costly one. The life of following Jesus is a compelling one that demands a high cost and immediacy that challenges the things we want in this world. To follow Jesus means that you are abandoning your attachment to the things of this world. Not that you necessarily have to abandon them all, but you're abandoning your attachment and your bond to them. You're choosing to forgo the comforts and expectation of a person who is not living for the kingdom of God. It's a life of generosity and service and humility, readiness and listening to the Spirit. There's no command that that says everyone has to sell everything they have immediately. But some have had that call in their life and they've obeyed. There's no command that everyone who says yes to Jesus needs to immediately pack up and move to a dark corner of the world and preach the gospel. Although, some have been called and have obeyed. The idea of what Jesus tells these potential followers of him in Matthew chapter 8 is that holding on to the things of this world and attempting to follow Jesus does not work. doesn't work because the world wins. If we say yes to Jesus with our mouth and cling to the things of this world, that bond is so tight that the world more often than not wins. When you say yes to Jesus, when you accept the call that comes at a high cost for our life, there are a lot of people who said yes to Jesus but have not said yes to the life he calls us to. And that person, as we see, is not really on Jesus' radar. Look at how he speaks to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. He writes there, he speaks to them, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus would prefer a yes or a no over hypocrisy. Jesus wants people who will authentically follow him, not people who will give him lip service. We have to come to grips with the reality of living in the kingdom. And the people, honestly, I was, I was kind of thinking through this passage, and, and the people that will find tension in this passage are not the unbeliever, necessarily, or the fervent disciple of Christ, attempting and, and trying and striving to give their lives to him. But it's the people who have said yes to Jesus with their mouths, but not their lives. This is the group of people that will have a hard time with this text because it's going to interrupt and interfere with how we want to live our life. It means we can't have our cake and eat it too. We can't say, I I want the benefits of the kingdom. I don't want to end up in hell, so I'll say yes to Jesus. But I'm not going to change my life in any way to prepare for life with Christ or to reflect the way I was truly made to live. I'm going to keep living the way I want to live, but, but just in case, I'm going to say yes to Jesus so I end up in heaven. And I, Matt, I was talking with Matt about this this week, and, and we were both, we're both kind of pastorally sharing together that the, some of the most miserable people we've ever met are the people who say yes to Jesus, but are not saying yes to the life he's calling them to. Miserable. Like such a disconnect in their life. And if I'm honest, like, those are the hardest moments in, I, in my life. When, I, when I'm saying yes to Jesus, but my life is not matching up to that. 
those are the, the hardest disconnects because I have this internal, like, like just it doesn't, it doesn't compute, this internal like, thing in me that says, like, I've said one thing and I'm doing another, and these are the most miserable times for me as well. When I want all the perks of the kingdom, but I don't want to live a life that prepares me for the kingdom. The call to follow Jesus is weighty and, and wonderful. It's a gracious relief in a dark world and a call that will cost you your life. Look what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so just as, a, as we close and consider how we respond to this text, uh, I, I have two questions to kind of consider for us and, and some self-examination or some I don't know, self-pondering or something, introspection. And the first is, are there things you're holding on to as entitlements or expectations of this life that Jesus may be asking you to give up? Are there things you're holding on to as entitlements, expectations of this life that Jesus may be asking you to give up? Is it safety, comfort, is it a relatively nice house with no leaks or something? Is it like a, a newer car? Is it a, a big family, having kids, being married, not being married, being single, kind of holding your life in your own hands? Are there things that have become entitlements or expectations in this life that Jesus may be asking you to give up? <clears throat> and if you're a note kind of taken person, these are great questions to come back to this week or talk about in your your MC this week. And the second question is, are some of you saying yes to Jesus, but you want to wait until you figure something out before you really follow him? Are you saying yes to Jesus, but I'm going to wait until I do this, until I get this, until I finish this, before I'll really follow you? And the call from this text at its most basic level for us as a church is to choose Christ over the fleeting pleasures of the world. That's it. Choose Christ over the fleeting pleasures of this world. Would you stand? I'm going to pray for you. <clears throat> Father, would we allow your spirit and your word to convict us and to... Um, Lead us back to our God, where we have strayed or where we have gotten off track or where things have taken priority over you, where, where we have delayed following you, where we have been wrapped up in our entitlements or expectations of this life. Would you, uh, through your word and your spirit, convict us and bring us back to you? Would you remind us uh, that your mercies are new every morning? You wash us clean. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God, you have purchased us, you've redeemed us, you've brought us into your family. And for that, we are grateful and thankful and we worship and praise you. But there's a high cost to following you. And so would you help each and every one of us as we take a few minutes to respond 
Um, would you help us discern what that is for our life? Help us see our lives rightly. Help us see you rightly and help us change. Help us choose you over the fleeting pleasures of this world. Amen.